Okay, John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. Oh, I'm going to use this one. All right. John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughters of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now I titled this sermon, Bandwagon Followers, or Everyone Loves a Winner. Now if you're, ter- you're, if you're familiar with the term being a bandwagon fan, um, what that kind of means is uh, generally it, it refers to like getting on the bandwagon. In other words, it's referring to joining a movement or a cause kind of sort of because of excessive hype. And it's very prevalent in sports teams, right? So everybody loves a winner. So I confess that even though I enjoy playing basketball, I don't really watch it very much. So, uh, you know, when the, Warriors, so when the Warriors are playing during the season, I don't really pay any attention at all. But in 2007, that's where the hype really got super big, right, the Warriors, and they had it a, a whole campaign called We Believe. That at the at toward the end of that season they started winning and it was like we believe we can make it to the playoffs you know and so they made it to the playoffs and then they got um, they got they did get eliminated the second round but I mean that was a miracle for them to get into the playoffs and so everyone's kind of jumping on the bandwagon okay I'm a Warriors fan well it kind of sort of happened this year too with the 49ers right the 49ers have been terrible for a long long time but all of a sudden they got really good and so I confess I was kind of a 49ers on the 49ers bandwagon, and as they started winning, I started watching the games. And, uh, but, on the other hand, I consider myself a Giants faithful, all right? So that I'm a Giants fan. And so I was there when they were terrible. And, uh, but I was also there when Barry Bonds was there, and they were making the run for the World Series. They didn't make it. But the years following, when Barry Bonds left, they weren't very good. But I was still, I considered myself a faithful fan. And then, you know, a couple years ago, they kind of out of the blue came out and were in the, in the run for the World Series. Then every, all of a sudden, everyone's a Giants fan and everyone's wearing their Giants gear and, and, uh, and it was exciting. Um, and, and so, or another one very, um, uh, near is, is this whole thing, Lynn Sanity. Right? Like I said, I don't watch basketball, so then all of a sudden I'm hearing this guy's name, Jeremy Lin, Jeremy Lin, and I'm like, I knew that he played for the Warriors, but he got traded to the New Jersey Nets, right? And that's the thing about the Warriors. Anytime they trade some player away, that player always does way better when he's not on the Warriors, okay? But anyways, Jeremy Lin, right? A lot of Asian Americans know about him because he's, uh, he's, he's Asian American, but he, he totally... 
he only got to play because all the really good players were injured or sick or something. So he got to play, and then he did phenomenal. And then all of a sudden, when he was playing, they were winning. And so they, the media dubbed this Lynn Sanity, that people were crazy over him. Um, at, at one time in February, his rookie card sold for 21000 on eBay. Now, I don't know what it's worth now because I feel like things have died down and I don't hear his name very often. And actually, I don't even know how the New Jersey Nets are doing or how Jeremy Lin is doing at all. But at that time, people were going crazy because everybody loves a winner. And that's kind of where we come into this scene in the gospel story as Jesus is entering Jerusalem. You know, as... Um, Matt shared about, about the excitement about Jesus, that he has been doing really great and wonderful things. And at this time, it was Passover. And I was, when I was doing some background research on, on this uh, event in Jerusalem, it was mandatory for all male Jews to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, Tabernacles, and Passover. But Passover was the most popular it was a celebration of freedom and deliverance for the Jews. It was a time of rejoicing of God's miraculous intervention in bringing the people out of bondage in Egypt. And so if you've been reading the gospel on every page, right, we read through the Exodus account and everything. And so the population of the city of Jerusalem swelled from 50,000 to 150,000 people at Passover time. I mean, so these people, there's a, a lot of people gathered, and they're excited, and they had heard about what has been going on. Now, so today we're going to look at three groups of people in this gospel story, and they each had expectations of Jesus. And we're going to look at how each group responded to Christ in different ways. Now, the first group that we're going to look at is the crowd. Now, the crowd could also be divided into two groups. So the first crowd is in verse 12. In verse 12, it says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So in other words, these, this was the crowd of people that were already in Jerusalem. They had already made the pilgrimage there. And so, you know, they had heard. And... Um, and they had heard that Jesus was on his way. But there was a second crowd. And in verse 17, it says, Now that no, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. So Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And so people who had seen that occurrence were following Jesus. And so they were heading toward Jerusalem with Jesus. So there's this huge crowd with Jesus, excited. They had seen the resurrection of Lazarus. They had seen a man who was dead come to life. And they were talking about it, and they couldn't get enough of it. I mean, if you had seen something so amazing... They were talking about it. Could this be the Messiah? Then I'm sure so, the word had gotten out about it that, and that so that all the people who were waiting in Jerusalem were like, is Jesus coming or not? In um, uh, John chapter 11, 55, it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus as they stood in the temple area. They asked one another, what do you think? Is he coming to the feast at all? Right? I mean, so there, there's this expectation and there's this huge crowd and they wanted to see Jesus. And with these crowds came expectations. You know, as Matt talked about um, 
during our worship set. God had delivered the Israelites from Egyptian oppression and brought them to the promised land. And now, but they had lost it because of their sin and disobedience and their idolatry. So now there was an expectation that Jesus as king would come in victory, would overthrow and kick out the Romans who were in charge, and the land would once again be theirs. But there was also an expectation of healing and prosperity and security and everything that comes when you believe someone in charge can make a difference. We have that hype every time there's a new presidential election, right? I mean... Uh, there was that hype, oh, Barack Obama, he's the, the, new, the new president. I mean, if, if, we, if we elect him, he will bring such new things. And, and, you know, and it's like, well, he's been president. I don't know if that much has changed. But now that Barack Obama's president, you know, the Republicans are saying, well, no, we need a change. This new president, this new candidate, he's going to be the one to, to get the nation back on track. And, and I'm sure there are some people who are hyped up about that. But we are always, as a, just a sinful people, looking for someone else to fix our problems when we're not happy. And so, uh, and, and that's just what the crowd wanted. They wanted that king. They wanted that king to give them back their land. They wanted that king who would heal them. They wanted that king who would bring back their prosperity. And so they had all of these expectations. And what was their response? And verse 13, so they took palm branches, right? And so, so these were a symbol of victory or triumph. So that's what you each have a representative of. And that's what it meant. It meant victory or triumph. If I was to bring it into our context, it would it'd be a foam finger that says, Jesus is number one, all right? I mean, those, that's what it meant. It meant victory. It meant triumph. And that's what they were waving. And then secondly, they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Now what does Hosanna mean? You know, we sing it all the time in songs. And I remember one time, um, my friend had brought her friend to church who was not a Christian. And he, you know, we're singing a song that said Hosanna in it. And he goes over to her and he says, what does Hosanna mean? She's like, I don't know. (laughs) But so we sing it all the time, but we don't really know exactly what it means. Well, what does it mean? Well, it's a Hebrew expression that, that literally means save, we pray. Save us, we pray. And it's found in Psalm 118, verse 25, which uh, we read a version of. And it was sung and recited during uh, the different feasts, but later it became associated with the messianic expectations of, of the Messiah coming as king. And then just later, it just became a general shout of praise. So, Hosanna really is just a general shout of praise, like hallelujah. Okay, so that's what it means. And so, so they are, when they are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they are recognizing and saying, yes, I think, we think that you may be the Messiah, that you may be the king that we are expecting. And so that's how the crowd responded to Jesus as the coming king, the long-awaited Messiah. Now the second group, so the first group is the crowd. The second group in the story that we're going to look at is the disciples. And these are Jesus' faithful followers. Kind of like, you know, I, the, the, I think there's a term like the 49er faithful. The 49er faithful are the ones who are 49ers fans, whether they're doing really well, whether they're doing really bad. Or, you know, I consider myself a Giants faithful in the sense of, you know, I'll, I'll go to their games, I'll watch them, whether they're good or whether they're bad. And so these are, these are Jesus' disciples, are Jesus' faithful followers. They were there from the very beginning. 
And, uh, and they had been with him for three years, seeing his healings, seeing the miracles, hearing his teaching. And so their expectations of Jesus was that they believed that he was the Messiah. And like the crowd, they were expecting him to come in earthly glory and reign as king on the earth. And, but what's interesting about the disciples is that they expected to be in power as well. And I love this story in Mark 9.33 where the disciples are walking along the road and, Jesus, and they're, they're kind of having this little disagreement. And Jesus later goes up to them and says, hey, what were you arguing about on the road? But they all look at each other and they don't say anything because they had been arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus knew that, right? But it was just like that kind of, they, it was, they got caught. I mean, here they are, they're following Jesus, and they're arguing about who's the greatest among them. And later, in Mark chapter 10, James and John, who are two of the disciples, go to Jesus and say, you know, Jesus, we have a request of you. And he's like, okay, what do you want? And they say, we want to sit on your left and your right hand in power. You know, And basically, they're saying, we want to be like your left and right hand persons. We want to be up there with you. And Jesus said, well, that's, that's for somebody else, and you don't actually know what you're asking for. But when the ten other disciples heard about it, they were not happy. It was, you know, they were upset that James and John had asked for that. So even the disciples, I mean, they, they had expectations of Jesus, but their expectations was that they would be in power along with them. And when Jesus, even when Jesus told them to get a young donkey to ride on in verse 14, um, you know, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. Um, they, didn't, uh, it was, they didn't understand that Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king is coming uh, to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, riding into the city on a young donkey was a sign of peace. And humility. Jesus did not ride a war horse. He did not carry a sword. He did not wear a crown. Christ was giving them a sign of what his kingdom would be about. Now, their response to what was happening as Jesus entered Jerusalem in verse, uh, is in verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So their response is that they're kind of confused. And actually if you read the, the Gospel of Mark, they're confused a lot. Uh, throughout their journey, Jesus would often tell them not to tell others that he was the Messiah. Right? He kept saying, you know, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Messiah. Well, don't tell anybody. And so he had been telling them, don't say anything. But now, he's coming into Jerusalem and he is accepting all of this public acclaim. In Mark 9.31, Jesus had said to him, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. So, so the, the disciples, they're probably super confused. I mean, all these people, all of this hype, and, and they're going in there, and they don't understand what's going on. 
but they're going along with it. I mean, hopefully, I think, I think they're also hopeful as well of that maybe this is the time, maybe this is the time when Christ is going to show his true colors and just really, you know, zap them down and, and knock out the, uh, the Romans who are in power. So there's two groups, right? There's the crowd. There's the disciples. Now the third group is the Pharisees. In verse uh, 19, the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now the Pharisees uh, were the religious rulers of the time. They were the elite class. They were the ones who had all of the spiritual knowledge. Um, But they were afraid of Jesus. And if you look in John chapter 11, verse 47 and 48, the the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So right there, the Pharisees don't care about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. They're just like, hey, this guy's going to take our place. This guy's going to take our position, and the Romans will take our power. So their response, now the response in verse 19 that I had read previously seems like they're giving up, but we know that this is not true. Just a few short days, they are going to have Jesus arrested and crucified. And so their response is, we need to get rid of this man. He is a danger to us. Well, so now how do these three groups of people relate to us? Right? I mean, it's just, just a story in the Bible. But I think when I was uh, putting this together, it's like, oh my gosh. I can totally identify with each group One, in their expectations of Christ, and two, in how they responded. So for each group that we looked at, the crowd, the disciples, the Pharisees, we can come up with three ways that people follow Christ today. How they, what they expect of Jesus and how they respond. Now the first group that kind of responds, represents the crowd, I would call consumer Christians. Consumer Christians. In other words, they have an expectation of Jesus or of God saying, what is in it for me? How is God going to help me to have a better life? How is following God going to help secure a better future for my child or my children? How is following God going to help me to get better grades? When we get into this mindset, we are looking to get our needs met. Or to be entertained. And all we're thinking about is, how, what have you done for me lately? Uh, there was this, and, and getting things, and, and that we need to get something from God. There was this one church, I think a couple years ago I saw this clip uh, on, a, on a, a news site, that said that they, this one church was promoting their Easter service. And so they were giving away... Nintendo DS's and large screen TVs. All right, and this was a huge mega church somewhere in the Midwest. Okay, so like thousands and thousands of people go to this church. So I guess they had the finances for that. But they were having a big uh, 
outreach and they wanted so they wanted people to come so they said hey if you bring a friend your friend gets to gets a gets to be in the drawing to get to receive a free a, a Nintendo DS or a large screen TV and this pastor defended his action he's saying you know what I don't have a problem bribing people to come because I want them to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and you know I was listening to that I'm like mmm I don't, I don't really go for that, but sure, I would like an, a free Nintendo DS or a free large screen TV. Um, but, so, but I think when we get caught in that mindset, we start thinking that coming to church is about us, that it's about receiving something. And so then how do we respond to God? When things are not going good, excuse me, when things are going well, we're happy and content with God. But when things start going badly, or we start getting really busy, following and worshiping Christ gets put on the back burner. If you look at your prayers, our prayers start to become requests for things to make my life more comfortable rather than listening to what God is saying. And we stop praying if we, if we aren't getting what we want. And pretty soon, following Christ can feel irrelevant. You know, when Jesus was arrested and it looked like Jesus wasn't the king, the people were expecting, many lost their hope. Their king was being crucified. You know, maybe even some of them were the ones, the ones who shouted Hosanna were the ones who were shouting, crucify him, seven days later. But when, when we are in a consumer Christian mindset, and when God doesn't give us what we want, our response starts to become, this doesn't work. I was talking, I shared a couple weeks ago that um, I've been having problems with my shoulder and uh, physical problems. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, and she's like, well, how do you feel when you pray for healing for your shoulder and God doesn't, uh, and there's no, and you're not getting better? And when I was talking to her, I said, I feel like, Prayer doesn't work. And even though that is not my theology at all, that is my gut knee-jerk reaction. Prayer doesn't work. You know, why pray if I'm not going to get what I want? And so, but that's when we get into that consumer Christian mindset, that becomes our, uh, our default. It's like, okay, well, if I do this, then I should get that. But God, our relationship with God is so much deeper and that God is doing so much more than just, you know, saying yes or no to all of our requests. Actually, the no actually drives us deeper. So when I say, Lord, will you heal my shoulder? And I'm getting, and the, and the answer may be not yet or no. Then it's like, okay, how do I go deeper with this? What is God doing? What am I learning? Am I learning about compassion? And am I learning perseverance? Am I entering into the sufferings of Christ? But you could do that with anything, whether it's getting into the school that you, or not getting into the school that you wanted to get into. What does that no mean? Prayer doesn't work? No. It means that God has something more. Or for myself too, when I was unemployed, I'm still unemployed in a certain sense, but waiting for that job, waiting for that next full-time ministry, and I'm praying and praying, or for any of you who have been unemployed, when you don't know when that next job is, and there's no response. Does that mean prayer doesn't work? It's like, no. God is doing something. 
but it's it's something deeper. And so, but, but we have to get out of that Christian consumer mindset. Now, the second uh, group uh, that that we can identify with is kind of the disciples when they were confused. That we can become confused and complacent Christians. And this is actually a mindset kind of past the consumer apart where it's like you don't have any expectations at all. You don't pray because God doesn't seem to answer your prayers. You don't read the Bible because it's boring. You don't actually really want to go to church because you don't feel like anybody cares about you. And so then you start to doubt, is there a God? I don't even know that there is a God. I don't even know if this is worth it. And I, you know, and you don't have confidence that God is working, or that He can, or that He will. Um, in in uh, one of the churches that I worked at, I was I had a youth leader, and she was she was great, uh, but she always struggled with her devotional life, and she felt like she wasn't good enough. And then she would just get so down on herself that, oh, well, I'm not praying, I'm not reading the Bible, and I don't even want to. And then she starts start doubting, oh, I don't even know if there is a God anymore. I don't even know, blah, blah. And she would just go down this really dark rabbit hole because God wasn't moving in her life. And so then, or there was, she felt bored or, or, or blah in her Christian life. And so her immediate jump was, okay, blah, bored, nothing happening, God doesn't exist. That goes back to the same thing when we make the connection of God's not answering my prayers, God doesn't exist, prayer doesn't work. That's not what is happening. So if there is that season when you're confused, when you're complacent, when you're like, I don't know what's going on, I feel blah, the answer is not God doesn't exist. The answer is God is there. He's doing something. But what is it deeper? What is the deeper thing that God is doing? And that takes perseverance. And it takes prayer, and it takes community, and it takes honesty saying, hey, I'm really in a blah space here. Help me out or pray for me. And so when we become confused and complacent, we respond with doubt. And we're going through the motions, and we have a stagnant life rather than a transformed one. The last group that kind of sort of uh, corresponds with the Pharisees is what I'm going to call controlling Christians. This is an expectation that God, well, that, that God expects perfection and that I have to try hard and live up to that standard. If I live up to my end of the bargain, I expect God to live up to his end. Everything is on my shoulders. I have to fix it. If I'm doing my reading, if I'm doing my Bible study, if I'm leading this, if I'm leading that, then God should be answering my prayers. I should have a blessed life. Or I have control. It's all up to me. And if things are, you know, you have in your mind that things are going to go a certain way, and when they don't go that way, when the unexpected happens, you start to freak out. You, are, you know that this is your uh, personality or this is where you're at when you respond to things with anxiety or performance orientation or people pleasing. Or if people consider you a control freak, okay, this is a good chance that this is the category that you are in. Like just the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted control. They wanted power. They wanted position. 
And they were so anxious when Jesus came in because he was doing stuff that they didn't expect and was not according to their rules and their way. And we, when we get into that mindset, we have that same thing. We, we feel so much pressure because I'm not reading the Bible enough, kind of like uh, the youth leader that I was talking about. I'm not reading the Bible enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not doing this enough. Or, you know, there's people aren't coming to church or they fall asleep during my sermon. I mean, it's like everything becomes, again, about me and my performance and trying to please God or please people. And it gets very exhausting. And so when, when things are not going your way, how are you responding? When you feel like uh, you find that anxiety, how are you responding to God? So now those are these three groups of, of, of people in the passage as well as how they relate to the Christian, uh, to us now. So there's the first group which is the uh, consumer Christian, right? Just kind of thinking, okay, what's in this for me? And, uh, and being discouraged when things don't go your way, you just kind of, then God becomes irrelevant. There's the, the confused or the complacent Christian, where it's like, you don't even, doesn't even seem like God's moving anyways. And then third, there's the controlling Christian, where it's like, it's all about me. Where do you find yourself this morning? You know, my, my hope is that you're like, I don't, I don't, I'm not any of those. And it's like, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Because I think there's a fourth category that I'm going to offer to you. And I think these are what I would call kingdom Christians. Their expectation is that Christ is Lord. That God is sovereign. You know, Paul gave a really great sermon last week uh, about in Acts that the Apostle Paul had a conviction that God was doing something in every area of his life. And so when we are kingdom Christians, we have a firm belief that God is with us and that God is for us. It was kind of like the rock and the serpent from uh, the Numbers chapter 20 a couple weeks ago. You know, we know that whatever, one, a firm belief that God is working in our world and two, that God is with us no matter what is going on and three, that God is for us. Whatever bad thing is happening is not necessarily God's punishment. Now, it may be a result like if you don't study for a test and you get a bad grade, that's not because God's punishing you. That's because you didn't study. All right? But, but if, you, if you can hold on to that, those three things, right? God is doing something in your world. Number two, that God is for you. Excuse me. God is with you. And three, that God is for you. Then you can become a kingdom Christian because then it is about seeking first the kingdom of God in Matthew 6.33. And Jesus says, right, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. And so when we have that expectation and and those three pillars of belief deeply rooted, God is moving, that God is with me, that God is for me, then whatever happens, we can get through. And then our response can be perseverance. It can be prayer. And even though God, you know, it it doesn't mean I stop praying for my shoulder because it's not happening, but it it means that my prayer goes deeper. Okay, Lord, uh, I still pray that you would take away this pain. But, 
you know, in this pain, I am going to suffer through it because I'm reminded of your suffering. Or I'm going to suffer with it, reminding, remembering that there are so many people in this world who have this type of pain, or worse, that are not getting relief. Okay, there's prayer. Then there's praise. We can respond with praise, knowing that God is doing something. And we can, sh- and we can also respond with sharing our life which is openness and accountability. It's kind of like the questions, right, that Paul shared uh, last week, which is what is God doing in your life and how are you responding? Because when we live as just single people and nobody knows you, nobody knows what's going on with you, nobody knows how to pray for you, um, nobody knows how to praise with you, then it's just that's not how God wants us to live. But when we live as kingdom Christians, we share, we share praises, we share, we share our sorrows, we share our laughter, we share that together. And we encourage one another and we lift each other up when times are difficult. So what is God speaking to you today? Have you been a consumer? Have you been complacent or confused? Have you been controlling lately? How will you respond today to Christ's invitation to seek His kingdom and His righteousness in the midst of all that is going on in your life and this world? Um, We're going to do a a time of just reflection. And during this reflection, we're going to ask you to take the the palm frond um, and I guess rip it in half. Um, and somehow make a cross out of it. Uh, if you can, if you're next to a a little cross that Alice did on the table there, is there? Can you hold it up? So Alice folded a little, a bunch of these little crosses. So if you're really craft handy, you could probably do that. I'm very craft impaired, so this is the way I'm going to do my cross, which is is just a little thing like that. <laughs> um, you know, when I was thinking about this, I was like, you know what's interesting about kids? When you ever give them something, they fashion it into a gun or a sword. <laughs> right? Whether it's a balloon, whether it's a brand, they're like, ha, 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 or pew, pew, pew. And in the same way, you know what? Really what a cross is, it's an instrument of death. And so in a, in a weird way, we are fashioning this into, into a, a gun or a sword. But this was an instrument of death. And so as we fashion this cross, I mean, this is the kingdom that Christ came to bring. It's, it's, it is a kingdom of, um, of healing and prosperity and security, but not in the earth. Not in the things of this world. But it is of spiritual prosperity, spiritual health spiritual security and that comes through suffering and it comes through death and so as we come to this time of just reflection you know just where are you at with God how have you been responding and you and you fashion this cross just kind of surrender those things to the Lord put them to death on the cross with Christ um, and later, during our time of communion, um, we're going to ask that you can bring them up. Paul will ask, invite you to bring them up with you when you take communion. Um, 
But let's pray and then um, Matt will lead us in a time of reflection um, after this. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you came to this earth and that you were not necessarily fooled by this adoration of the crowds in Jerusalem, but you received it because you are the righteous and worthy king. And that you said, well, if we stop the crowds, then even the rocks will cry out. So you are worthy, Lord, of our worship and our praise and of being our king. Forgive me, Lord, and forgive any of us who have expected the wrong things from you and maybe have been discouraged or have turned away. But Lord, I thank you that in the cross we also find forgiveness and restoration. Help us to become kingdom Christians who expect you to be king in our life and, uh, and will respond even in the dark times, to be that faithful follower, to know that you are working, uh, to know that there is hope, that you have not forgotten us, that you are with us, and that you are for us. Um, Thank you so much, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before? Before lunch, but after service. 
Um, right. No, we never did it after service. Oh, okay. But it's certainly, if all this other stuff is happening after service with the Chinese side, it, it's worth entertaining. Yeah, because they, they're probably going to hang around. There has or, to be some synchronization between something. <laughs> yeah. Between the Chinese side and yeah. the English side, yeah. this isn't going to work. And if they're not coming in the morning yeah. for other reasons, hard to get them to bring them. Okay, we'll, we'll explore that. Okay. It might, I mean, I think, you know, it'll be a time when people may logically be hanging around. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't make it. Keep having, we keep having the sticks back and yeah. forth with each other. So. All right.